Hey there, how you doing? My name is David, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor of 6-8 Church here in Vancouver, Washington. What you're about to hear is a message from our Sunday morning gathering, and we hope it encourages and inspires you on your journey to be more like Christ. For more information about 6-8 Church, visit 6-8church.com. That's the number 6 and the number 8 church.com. I want to start with a picture, and it's a very important picture to some people I know in this room. How many of you would say that you are uh, in the top category, the rare? Anyone would say that you got to have your steak rare? All right. How many are in the medium rare category? Okay, good, good. How about in the medium, just the medium? Yeah, okay. How many would say you're in the unfriend category? (laughs) How about in the block? I mean, this is like well done. Yeah, good. Good. All right, so um, how would you like your steak? How do you like your steak? Now, how many of you would say that it's actually wrong to overcook a steak? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so good, good. Way to go. Now, how does the fact, I want to ask, how does the fact that, you know, I prefer the taste of a well-done steak based on the scientific truth that eating undercooked meats can give you parasites, how does that fact make your life miserable? Right? I mean, so you look at this graphic, this is is not my graphic, I, I got this off of social media, and I've heard this many times, when I say I like, I like my steak to be well done, and then, then I get, I almost always get someone at the table who says, how dare you? This just, that is just wrong. What, how could you, how could you do such a tragic thing to a good steak? And then it seems like the more expensive the steak is, the more unjust it is to want that steak to be cooked well done, right? But how does my liking my steak cooked well done affect your life in any way, shape, or form? And along those lines, I like ketchup. (laughs) And so I have to ask, is it really such a bad thing that I like to put ketchup on my steak? (laughs) Yeah, some people are gonna be leaving the church as a result of this, I'm sure. But seriously, let's just think about this logically for just a minute, right? How does my liking ketchup, I mean, I like ketchup. I just like ketchup on a lot of things. And the fact that I like to put ketchup on steak is no different than I like ketchup on chicken and on sandwiches and all kinds of things. Like, I just, I just like ketchup. Now, how does the fact that I like ketchup, how could that possibly offend you? Right? I mean, how could you possibly be offended by the fact that I like steak well done, and I like ketchup on my steak, and I like the way the combination of well done steak with ketchup on it tastes? Oh, but see, but see, there are some things that I can prove scripturally are right and wrong, and we've been over this, but... But the Israelites, when they were slaves in Egypt, wanted onions, and the onions was a sign that they wanted to go back into slavery. And so, um, but how does it offend others? Like, how does it offend you that I like ketchup on my steak? I mean, you're not in my mouth, right? You don't know what my mouth enjoys. So, so in what way does my enjoying ketchup on my steak negatively impact your pursuit of happiness? It doesn't. But what about ranch? I I know there are a lot of people that like ranch on their pizza. I don't like ranch on my pizza, but a lot of people like ranch on their pizza and they like ranch on a lot of things. Or, Or what about if I like guacamole on my ice cream? How does someone even come up with that flavor in the first place? You know, there is an avocado-flavored ice cream. We assume, I think, that it's people like with sophisticated flavor palettes like Gordon Ramsay coming up with these ideas. Like, like Gordon Ramsay would say, the vanilla is only for chumps. 
And the only way to really enjoy ice cream is to add avocado. But you know, when Gordon Ramsay is sitting on his couch by himself, he's eating moose tracks. He's not eating avocado-flavored ice cream. <laughs> Guaranteed. But here's how I think the avocado ice cream flavor actually came about. Somebody was eating ice cream from the container in the dark in the kitchen. They reached into the fridge to grab the strawberry jam to dump into the vanilla flavored ice cream. But instead of grabbing the strawberry jam, they grabbed the guacamole, put it in, and they're too cheap to throw it away. So they put the container back in, and the next day they claimed they had invented the world's best ice cream flavor. That's how I think avocado-flavored ice cream actually came about. But I think we do this all the time, right? I mean, we do this all the time. We elevate our opinions, preferences, and points of view over those of others. Sometimes it's in good fun, but other times it can be quite damaging. It's, it's one thing to elevate yourself as a condiment connoisseur, but it's another thing to elevate your social, political, and economical views over those of others. And when people have elevated themselves in the name of religion, horrible things have happened. We're dealing with a question this week about the injustices that have been done in the name of Christianity or in the name of religion in general. And from chapter 4 of the book, Reason for God, Tim Keller says this, Many people who take an intellectual stand against Christianity do so against a background of personal disappointment with Christians and churches. We all bring to issues intellectual predispositions based on our experiences. So I think all of us could look into our lives and see that, that there are things that, that have happened to us, and because those things have happened to us, it changes the way we think about issues. We can look at some of the harm that has been caused, some of the good, some of the bad that has happened to us, and based on our experiences, it changes the way we think about issues, right? But the problem is that none of us, myself especially included, is an absolute authority on anything. We're not an absolute authority on any one topic, let alone on every topic. And Pastor Keller says in the book, when people have done injustice in the name of Christ, they're not being true to the spirit of the one who himself died as a victim of injustice and who called for the forgiveness of his enemies. A lot of injustice has been done in the name of Christ. Even if you leave the first 19 centuries out of it, in the last century alone, plenty of damage has been done in the name of Christ. All I have to do is mention the, the church, Westboro Baptist, and probably hundreds, if not thousands of images come to our minds about things that have been said, horrible things that have been said to people in the name of Christ under the name of a Baptist church. I myself have been wounded a lot by the church. Unfortunately, I think I have also wounded others in the church. Not by intention, not by desire, but just by the way things work. By myself holding too tightly to an ideal or to an opinion, I have hurt someone. And conversely, the same has happened to me. Sometimes we cling to ideas more tightly than we cling to love. These are some of the ways that I've been hurt by the church. One of my first jobs leading worship as a worship leader, I volunteered for 25 to 30 hours a week leading worship for a college, a college group as well as a Sunday night service. And the pastor that was leading the Sunday night service, who was the associate pastor at the time, had made a promise to me that, that when the time came, the job would be mine. When, a, when, when there was money there for a job, then I would be the one that got that job to lead worship. And the money came, and the time came, and the job was given to someone else 
who had not worked as hard. That was hard. I have literally been yelled at in front of a congregation by a senior pastor. The senior pastor forgot that he gave me permission to lead worship from the piano. He expected me to lead worship every Sunday from the pulpit doing this thing. Every, this is how we led worship back in the day, and I was, I was forbidden from leading worship at the piano. But one Sunday, the pianist was gone for the service, and there was no other option. So I played piano and led worship from the piano, which is how I had been used to doing it. And when he came back that Sunday evening, he yelled at me in front of the whole congregation. So much so that I, I had to say, we need to not do this here, let's go into your office. Where he then called the district superintendent in, who lived in the house next door, to come in and yell at me as well. I have actually literally been yelled at for wanting to share the gospel in a Christmas program. In meetings on church committees where we were planning Christmas, Christmas programs for the purpose of telling people about Jesus coming at Christmas time, I have been yelled at for wanting to include the gospel in the Christmas program. When I, when I asked, I said, well, don't you think that the gospel is more important than tradition, which I was challenging some of the traditions. I was younger at that time and didn't have as much wisdom as I do now, but I was challenging some of the traditions and I said, don't you think it, that, the, that the gospel is more important than tradition? To which the answer was, well, no. Not at Christmas time, I don't. And I said, well, I don't think we have anything else to talk about. I've been yelled at by my senior pastor for not being a yes man. I was literally fired for not being enough like Chris Tomlin. And I've been accused of things that aren't even worth mentioning. So, why then would I continue to be a Christian? Why would I continue to be in the church and continue to be the pastor of a church? Why would I be the pastor of a church where I have also received scars that have been added to the account of my heart? Why would I continue to be a pastor where I have failed other people and I have scarred their hearts? Why would I continue to be a pastor in the midst of those kinds of situations? Well, I think it's just because sometimes we get off track. The truth is, I think sometimes we just, we just get a little bit off track. We start thinking about things or we think our ideas are the most important ideas or our position is the most important position. I know I've been guilty of that many times. And instead of walking in humility, we fight and we get off track. See, most of the scars that have been put on my soul were put there by people acting in the name of Christ. Most of the scars were put there by abusers of Christianity who were either elevating themselves in their opinion of what was most important over my dignity and worth or by claiming to have Christ but not living according to Jesus' standards. That's where most of the scars in my life have come from. And I'm sure that people in this room have also received a lot of scars from people who are either elevating themselves or not living according to Jesus' standards. At the same time, just as a lot of injustice has been done in the name of Christ, ridiculously more good has been done in the name of Christ. For instance, he mentions in the book that slavery was actually abolished, abolished because uh, it was wrong and Christians were the leaders in saying so. It can be traced back even a thousand years to Christian leaders who taking a stand against slavery in Europe. 
Millions, literally millions of lives throughout history have been saved by orphanages, hospitals, and places of refuge by Christians. And billions of lives, literal billions of lives, have been made better by Christians giving food, clean water, fighting for rights, putting their lives at risk for the sick and marginalized, and much, much more. So there is a lot of good that has been done in the name of Christ, but there is also bad that has been done. Now, I think if you actually look at the course of history, the scale you know, greatly tips towards the good side in contrast to the bad, but because Christianity is also the major religion, so to speak, of the world with nearly three billion Christians, three billion people on the planet claiming to be Christians, it also receives the most attention and is the biggest target. A lot of good and a lot of bad has been done. How do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile the good and the bad? St. Augustine said this. He said to never judge a philosophy by its abuse. Never judge a philosophy by its abuse. You've, you've heard it said that that the church is a hospital for the sick. Maybe you've even seen this meme that's gone around. Not going to church because of the hypocrites is like not going to the gym because of the out of shape people. (laughs) We give up on church because there are imperfect people at the church not realizing that the church is a hospital for the sick, not a museum for saints. So how do we reconcile this? How do we bring some kind of sense to this difference between the good and the bad that has all been done in the name of Christ? Well, I think we can do it by looking at our verse as a church, Micah 6.8. If you will, for a second, will you just stand up with me and let us read this out loud together? Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's read it one more time, with slightly more enthusiasm than that time. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Thank you. You can have a seat. We've said all along, this is the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a church that does justice, that loves mercy, and that walks humbly. We want to be people, individuals, who in our individual lives do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. We want to be this way as a collective, and we want to be this way as individuals, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. I would argue that any injustice that has been done in the name of Jesus has violated one, if not all three, of these core principles, doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly. Conversely, when you are living by these three principles, you will be far less likely to cause pain in the name of Jesus. If you're doing justice, if you're loving mercy, if you're walking humbly, you'll be far less likely to cause pain in the name of Christ. Doing justice is doing what's right, and doing what's right is doing what's right according to what God says is right, not our standards, but we go to his standard for it every time, and we act justly according to God's rightness. Loving mercy means that we actually love the idea of walking with people in their pain. We are compassionate, kind people out of the overflow of God's love in our hearts And we walk humbly with God. We do not seek to make God walk with us, but we are constantly walking with God, letting him lead us and guide us and direct us every step of the way. Those things, if we live by those three principles in every area, every facet of our life, I think we'll be far less likely to cause pain in the name of Jesus. Well, let's look then at what ways... These injustices, injustices that are done in the name of Christ, actually violate the three core principles of Micah 6.8. 
So when we are talking about doing justice, I want to contrast that the idea, contrast that with the idea of focus. Contrast the idea of doing justice with the idea of focus. And by focus, I mean what we focus on. When our focus is off, we are likely to inflict damage on others. When our focus is off, we are likely to inflict damage on others. And what I mean by that is that our focus or our vantage point tends to primarily be on ourselves. Our focus, my focus in life, my vantage point in life tends to primarily be on me, right? This is true for all human beings, that we tend to primarily focus on ourselves. We tend to focus on others from the vantage point of ourselves. We tend to look at others from the, the, the perspective of us. We all also operate within the framework of our own beliefs, our own assumptions, our own intentions, and our own story. This is how we think and operate in our lives, from our own beliefs, our own assumptions, our own intentions, and our own story. And you've heard me say this before, but we judge the actions of others devoid of their intentions, while we tend to overemphasize our intentions even when they conflict with our actions. We judge the actions of others devoid of their intentions while we tend to overemphasize our intentions even when they conflict with our actions. In the book he says, unless you know the starting points, and then he goes on to talk about people who have come to Christ but have come from very different backgrounds and over the course of their lives they, they started at very difficult places. And if you knew the starting point and you saw where they are today, you would think a radical change has happened. But if you don't pay attention to the starting point, the temptation then is to become very critical that they aren't measuring up to what our idea is. It's very easy for us to judge and condemn others based on our vantage point because they didn't start where we started. And I would say that justice tends to be interpreted by personal opinion and preservation. We tend to decide what's right based on our personal opinion and our personal preservation. But when our focus is on God, and it's God guiding our vision, we will definitely see the world differently, right? When our focus is on God instead of on ourselves and our way of thinking and our stories and our assumptions and our intentions and our beliefs, and our, our focus then is on God, and God is the one guiding our visions, then, then the way that we see the world changes entirely, so it is about our focus. Doing justice is about whether we're focused on God or whether we're focused on ourselves and what we're using as a lens. What glasses are we wearing to look at the world? So I, I would say for me as a follower of Jesus Christ, my job is not to fight for what I think is right. My job is to seek understanding of what God determined to be right. And then when I have what I think is understanding, to be gracious with one another. Because even if we are right, at some point in our lives, we weren't living up to what we now understand to be right. And if we're being honest, there are probably still days when we fail to live up to what we believe to be right today. So I think our job is not as much to fight for what we think is right, it is more to be gracious with one another. Our job is not to prove someone else wrong. We see this happening all over the face of America right now, where we think it's our job to prove that we're right and someone else is wrong. Our job is not to do that, though, it is to do justice the way that Jesus did. And the way that Jesus did justice was he gave the truth, but he also was the truth, and he died for the people as the truth while they were clinging to what they thought was right. 
Jesus did give them the truth. He told them the truth, but he also was the truth. He was the reality of God in person. And then as the reality of God in person, he died for the people who were clinging to what they thought was right, even though he knew that he was right. He died for them as the truth of God. So I think justice has a lot to do with focus, and we should ask ourselves, what glasses are we using to look at the world and others? The glasses of ourselves, our beliefs and understanding, or the glasses of Christ and his eternally sacrificial love? So the focus and justice, I think, are contrasted. Mercy, I think, needs to be contrasted with rigidity. Mercy should be contrasted with rigidity in the context of doing right and wrong. When we are inflexible in our pursuit and understanding of God's truth, we become more likely to inflict damage. I'm not saying we need to, be, we need to embrace relative truth that we just all decide what's true for us. That is not what I'm saying. But when we are inflexible in our pursuit of understanding God's truth, we are likely to inflict damage. I grew up as a Wesleyan. I grew up in a Wesleyan household, a Wesleyan church, went to Indiana Wesleyan University. Wesleyans are from the Arminian background of theology, if you know what that is. Then when I moved out here to, uh, to finish up school at Multnomah, Multnomah was a Calvinistic school, still is a Calvinistic school, and teaches Calvinism as its theology. And I took a class at Multnomah called Anthropology, Christology, and Soteriology. We, we called it ACS for short, because nobody wants to say that many words. And so and when I was taking ACS, we had to do a paper about you know, salvation, and, and uh, I chose the topic of Calvinism versus Arminianism as the theme for my paper. And some of the stuff I learned when I started digging into Calvinism and Arminianism, especially when there was a fight in Europe for the theology to kind of be the dominant theology of the land, were actually startling. When some towns and regions adopted Calvinism as the official theology, they drove out and even put its opponents to death. Even John Calvin himself argued for the death penalty and the putting to death of heretics who did not embrace Calvinism. And if I were a citizen in one of those countries at that time, I would have probably been put to death. I'm not saying, I'm not making an argument either for or against either of those things. What I'm saying is that when we become inflexible in our pursuit and understanding of God's truth, we become much more likely to inflict damage in the name of Christ. There's a great danger when we think we have all the answers, when we think that we know all of Scripture and we become unwilling to engage in dialogue with other Christ followers about their understanding. There's great danger when we, when we become rigid in our beliefs of what we think the Bible is teaching. And when there is no room for flexibility and discussion and talking about how someone else interacts with the same concepts in Scripture. And much, I mean, a lot of damage has been done in this. Where I came from in Ohio, in the southwest, southeast part of Ohio, there was great division between the Baptist churches and the Wesleyan and Nazarene churches. The Wesleyan Nazarene churches were absolutely convinced that they had the right answers and that the Baptists were going to hell. And conversely, the Baptist churches and the Calvinistic churches also believed that they had the right answers and that the Wesleyans and the Nazarenes were going to hell. 
It may not have been taught that way from the pulpit, but it was worked out that way in practice by the parishioners. It's a great danger when we think we have all the answers. When we look at conflicting topics like this, what we have to understand is that there is a conflict for a reason. Right? There, there is Calvinism and Arminianism for a reason. And it's not because one group interprets Scripture correctly and the other group misinterprets Scripture. It's because there are difficult issues in the Bible. And, and, and there's not always a clear cut and dry answer. For instance, the major topic between Calvinism, or one of the major topics of disagreement between Calvinism and Arminianism is the idea of eternal security and losing your salvation. The reason both ideas are, are there, or in each you know, division, is because both ideas are taught in Scripture. So we have talked about how, well, we believe in eternal security. We don't have a problem with the idea of eternal security. But we also, looking at a lot of Jesus' teaching, see that Jesus spent a lot of time talking about people who reject their salvation and deny Christ. And so, so there must be some room in between. John chapter 16, verse 13 and 14, Jesus says this. He says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes talking about the Holy Spirit, who we believe, according to Scripture, is here in our gathering right now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. When we become rigid and inflexible and fighting for what we think is right, I actually think we run the risk of, of silencing or contradicting the spirit of truth in the life of someone. What I mean by that is that if the same Holy Spirit is is guiding you into the truth that is also in this person guiding them into the truth and in the context of unity and community and, and surrendering and submitting to God's truth. If the same spirit of truth is leading this person to come to this conclusion and this person to come to this conclusion and we disagree, chances are somewhere along the way we're both wrong. And what's needed is not for us to become rigid in our stance and fight for what we think is right and then make the other person on the other side to become more rigid in defense of their stance and fight for what's right. What's needed is for us to come together flexibly and under the understanding of God's truth and seek that the spirit of truth guide us into unity. Isn't that what compassion would do? If you're walking with someone in their pain, if you're walking with someone in their struggle from leaving behind a Christless life to a Christ-like life and the struggle that that means, wouldn't you walk alongside someone in their pain and in their journey and instead of pointing out all of the things that they're getting wrong, you would affirm the things that the spirit of truth is actually teaching them for where they are. Lastly, to contrast walking humbly with God with elevation. When we elevate ourselves above others, we are likely to inflict damage on others. When we elevate ourselves above others, we're likely to inflict damage. This is happening like to the nth degree in our country right now. There is an elevation of what I think is right, and a minimalization, a belittling, or worse, of people who disagree. It's happening on both sides of the aisle in the government. It's happening with a lot of religious leaders. It's happening a lot of 
with a lot of evangelical Christian leaders and a lot of liberal Christian leaders. A lot of people are elevating their point of view as the supreme point of view and minimalizing and belittling others who think differently. In the book, Pastor Keller says that religion transcendentalists ordinary cultural differences so that the parties feel that they are in a cosmic battle. Sorry, religion transcendentalizes ordinary cultural differences so that the parties feel they're in a cosmic battle between good and evil. Religion transcendentalizes ordinary cultural differences so that parties feel they're in a cosmic battle between good and evil. And then he says, when the idea of God is gone, a society will transcendentalize something else, some other concept in order to appear morally and spiritually superior. When the idea of God is gone, a society will transcendentalize something else, put it up in the place of God, some other concept, in order to appear morally and spiritually superior. And this is happening a lot right now. Then he says, in the 20th century, however, violence has been inspired as much by secularism as by moral absolutism. In other words, a lot has been done by those who say there is no God and have transcendentalized their issue in the place of God as has been done in the name of Christ. This is what I think has been happening. So many in our culture no longer believe that God exists or are willing to worship him. We have tried then to fill that void with transcendentalized things like political parties, sexuality, and various forms of self-aggrandizement. We put a lot of things in the place of God. And then we elevate ourselves and belittle those who disagree. And I think it's this elevation of ourselves and our own understanding that leads us then to fanaticism. And this is what Keller says in the book about fanaticism. He says, however, what if the essence of Christianity is salvation by grace? Salvation, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. The people who are fanatics then are not so because they are too committed to the gospel, but because they are not committed to it enough. They are fanatically courageous and zealous, but they are not fanatically humble, loving, sensitive, empathetic, forgiving, or understanding as Christ was. His argument is that fanatics aren't committed enough to the gospel because if you're committed to the gospel, you're becoming more and more like Christ on a constant basis. Now, I will say the Bible-based beliefs are incredibly important. I will never not say that. But I think there's also something far more important than being right. And that's being united. This is why we constantly are working with other churches in the area to become unified. Churches that have different theological backgrounds than we do. We, you know, the five churches that have met now two times for nights of prayer and worship don't all agree on theology and practice but we're still united by Christ. And I think the ethic of unity, which flows from the ethic of unconditional love, must be higher than our own personal ethic of being right. And I think unity must become a higher ethic for us in the church than our own personal rightness. Elevation counters humility. Luke chapter 11, verse 46, Jesus replies to the Pharisees and Pharisees, not the Pharisees, like receipts, Pharisees. Jesus is giving the woes, and I said this last week that the word woe is, is literally kind of a grunt. It's a, it's a, uh, like, come on, guys. Mm. And you experts in the law, Jesus says, mm. to you experts in the law, mm. 
come on, guys. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Because of our journey, our story, our history, where we are right now in our individual walk with Jesus Christ, our individual journey, we have come through a whole series of things that have led us to this specific point where we are now capable of living and carrying the burden of following Christ in this way. Right? Does that make sense? Like our whole story, our whole backstory of who we were before Christ, how, how God brought us into the kingdom, and then all the things that God has taught us through the church, through scripture, through community, all these things. Now we are able to carry those things because of all of that backstory. But it becomes very easy for us in this current position, this current state that we are, to then put our belief system for where we are and all of that stuff goes out the window and we put the burden of where we are right now on someone else who does not have the same backstory, not have the same history, does not have the same journey. And they're not yet in a place with Christ to be able to live up to those things. And we typically think of the Pharisees as putting on this, you know, this religiously moral you know, ideals of, of just an incredible weight onto the people, onto the Jews of the day. And it was just this weight of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of rules that they had to live up to. And we condemn them for that. But we don't at the same time bring that to ourselves and think, oh, I can do that too. I can, put, I can put a burden on someone else that they're not yet ready to carry because that's not where they are in their walk with Christ. This is why it's so important that we understand that the spirit of truth guides people into the truth and that what they are ready for in that moment is what God will guide them to. And his process is far more refined than our process. Yes, we must be committed to God's truth. We must be committed to the process of that truth becoming real in each person. But we shouldn't make it a burden. In the end, this idea of doing harm in the name of Christ, I think it comes down to this. It's whose glory are we living for? Are we living for the glory of being the one who has it all figured out and has all of the right answers? In other words, are we living for our own glory because we know all the answers? Are, are, we, are we trying to elevate ourselves and prove that we have it all figured out and that people just need to come to us and do what we think they should do? And if people just did what we thought they should do, everyone would be better off. I've been guilty of that. I've definitely thought that way. You've even probably said that. If you just do what I think you should do. That would be my glory. Or are we living for the glory of the one who doesn't just give answers, but gives himself? See, the contrast is if I'm living for my own glory and I'm giving answers to how people should live out of my own answers, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying that there aren't right answers and right way to live. There definitely are. But if, if I'm giving people, you know, answers out of my own journey, I'm giving them answers to questions, but I'm not giving them me to help them live out those questions, right? Which is what they would need. Because where I am right now in my walk with Christ, I have this whole backstory, this whole backlog of things that, that have happened in my life to get me to the point where I am right now with Christ. And they don't have that. So the only way for this other person to live up to what I would say are my expectations for their life would be for me to give them me to be able to live that out. But I can't do that. So are we living for, for our own glory to be that person, to be someone's savior? Or are we living for the glory of the one who doesn't just give answers, but also gives himself? 
Jesus does answer the tough questions. Jesus does not pull any punches. Although if you look at the Gospels, a lot of times he answered questions with other questions and with parables that people just couldn't understand. But Jesus did answer the questions. But as much as Jesus' concern was with telling the truth, probably more so his concern was with being the truth. He wasn't just telling them the answers, he was being the answer. He wasn't just telling them the solution to the problem, he was being the solution to their problems. And so we cannot do that, right? The only way for us to live for God's glory is to understand that it is Jesus who is the solution to someone's problem. It is Jesus and the power of Jesus and the power of the Spirit of Christ and the power of the resurrection coming to life and welling up within this person to form a spring of living water in the heart and the soul of this person that empowers them to live this kind of Christ-like life that we do not have the power or the authority or the capability to be able to do. Jesus alone does this. And it's all his anyway, right? I mean, all authority on earth is his. All authority on earth is, has been given to Jesus. And so, so why not then live in unison or in unity with the governing authority of all of creation instead of living in conflict with it by living for our own glory? Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, my absolute favorite passage of, of scripture in the whole Bible. Paul says, therefore, if any of you have encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any common sharing in the spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. It's easy to fight for what we think is right. I've done it too many times. But what if we, in our relationships with other, we, other, one another, we just had the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who even though he was God, he came from the Father full of grace and truth, he had existed from all eternity, and he was there with God when God created the world. God, Jesus, was an active part of the creation of the entire universe, the, the ground that we walk in. Jesus was a part of that. And even though that is who he was, he didn't use that to his own advantage. He, he didn't use his godness for his own benefit. He, in other words, did not glorify himself. There came a moment in his life when, when he had fulfilled everything that had been done and he was praying to the Father and he said, now Father, glorify yourself and glorify the Son who has done what you sent him here to do. John chapter 17, if you want to go look that up. 
But he humbled himself and became obedient to death. What if we humbled ourselves and became obedient to death in the same way that Jesus did on the cross? And then if God chooses, he can raise us up. But let's leave that up to him and not do it for ourselves. Anytime we elevate ourselves, we belittle Christ. That's our big idea for the day. Anytime we elevate ourselves, we belittle Christ. I'm going to ask our prayer team to go to the tables around the room. If, the, if you're here this morning and, and you would say, yeah, I've, I'm in danger. I've been, I've been doing that and I would just like to get back on the right page with God and humble myself and serve his mission, not my own. Might be a good opportunity to go pray. Maybe you're here and you've been damaged or wounded by the church and you would just like to pray to release that and not be bound by that anymore. You can do that as well. Maybe you have something entirely different to pray about and you've had some kind of challenge this week and you'd like to pray with someone or maybe during this time over the course of this morning, God has encouraged you to go speak to someone and encourage them with, with some kind of word then uh, feel free to do that during this time. But we're just going to take a few minutes and give you an opportunity to respond in prayer, and then the band will lead us in a worship song. We'll close together, one voice worshiping God together in unity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the example that he set the way that he lived his life, and though he could have, if anyone had the right to, Jesus had the right to come and lord his life over all of us puny little earthlings. We thank you, Father, that he did not do that, that he laid his life down, that, that he surrendered himself, and instead of barking the solution in our face, he became the actual solution to our sin problem. Thank you, Father, that we have the opportunity to receive forgiveness for all of our sins, for all the ways we've elevated ourselves over you because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And I thank you, Father, that we have the gift of the resurrection power, the Holy Spirit himself guiding us into the truth, that as we walk with Christ, that we have guidance there, our counselor there to guide us into the truth that we need to be living into this day. Father, I ask, lead us into that truth. Lead us as individuals into that truth. Lead us as your body, your community into that truth. That we may more and more reflect the image of your son, Jesus Christ, to this world. In Jesus' name.